0: Hello, Redeemer. Let's see, am I turned on? No. I don't think I am turned on. Well, check, check, check. All right, all right, there we go. That's better. Hey, everyone, good to see you. It's me again here from last week. My name is Thomas Kuhn. I am the campus minister with RUF at the University of Nebraska. It's good to see some, some faces that are familiar and also to be with you tomorrow morning. Um, so I was reading recently about the Montgomery bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, and many of us may have heard of Rosa Parks um, and how she was uh, kicked off of a bus and arrested uh, and fined um, just for sitting in the wrong seat on a bus. What I didn't actually know is that this was, this was actually the beginning of something called the Montgomery bus boycott that was a longer uh, thing. Let me get this out of the way here real quick. Um, But the Montgomery Bus Boycott, it started in December 1955, and it went all the way to 1956, December. It was one whole year, and the goal of it was to desegregate the buses in Montgomery, Alabama. And this was organized by a lot of people, but some of them are very familiar. One in particular, Martin Luther King, Jr., was very instrumental in the Montgomery Bus Boycott. And we kind of tell this story as a victory in the Civil Rights Movement, and it was, but what we often don't talk about is the toll that this took on the leaders of the civil rights movement, especially Martin Luther King Jr. He told the story in a sermon that I came across recently. Shortly after the, uh, the boycott began, he began receiving all sorts of menacing phone calls um, and all sorts of letters sent to his house that were threatening violence. And this wasn't that big of a deal for him, actually, because he was pretty used to this, Unfortunately. But as time went on, the threats got to be a lot more credible, and they got to be a lot more specific and a lot more directed at his family. And then one time, Martin Luther King, he, he kind of hit a breaking point as he was getting all of these threats. His family had been threatened this time in a, in a particularly credible way, in a way that just did not sit right with him, and he stayed up all night. He couldn't go sleep. And as he was staying up, he's trying to figure out How in the world did I get myself in this situation? And more importantly, how can I get out of this situation? How can I step down without looking like a coward? Is there someone else who can lead this? And as he sat there in the middle of the night, he began to pray. And he records his prayer saying this. Says to God, I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. You see, Dr. King felt like God was not with him in the midst of this struggle. And today we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 33, and in in our passage today, Moses finds himself in a similar position. He's led the people out of Egypt, God has called him to lead them, and he's led them through countless military victories, he's led them straight through the Red Sea, through all sorts of, of crazy experiences, and in the midst of this, he has listened to all the constant moaning and complaining of the people. And then finally, he interceded for them before God, and he carried out justice in their midst. You can imagine Moses was a tired man at this point in the story. And in our passage that we're looking at today, Moses starts to realize that if he's going to move forward with this task of bringing the people into the promised land, then he needs to know that God is with him. He absolutely has to know what does this have to do with us? Obviously, we're not Moses and we're not Martin Luther King Jr., right? But I think we can relate to this need to know that God is with us. And I think even more than that, we can relate to this feeling of God not being with us. And the reason why that is, is because we were created for relationship with God. We were created to be known and loved by him. And yet we often feel distance. So as we look at this passage today, we're going to be asking this question. What should we do when we feel like God is not with us? What should we do when we feel like God is not with us? So I'm going to read the passage for us and pray, and then we can get started. So Exodus 33, starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will... Proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Let's pray. Our Father, this is your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and that we might behold you. Lord, I don't know um, where everyone listening to this is. Um, Some of us may feel very near to you. Some of us may feel very far. I pray, Lord, that Uh, you would use my words um, to meet people where they are. I pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so our question, what should we do when we feel like God is not with us? So just a little bit of background. There's a little bit of uh, things that have happened between last week's sermon and this week's. Uh, So last week's sermon kind of ended with um, the Lord uh, Moses interceding for the people, and then the Lord says, okay, it's now it's time for you to just to get up and move on from Sinai, and you're going to go to the promised land. And he tells Moses that he is going to send an angel before the people. And that sounds pretty cool, right? Like having an angel going before you. And it was pretty cool. It was actually a, a pretty big deal. But it was actually a change from what he had originally promised to them. He had promised that he was going to go up in the midst of them, and here he says he's going to send an angel. And why does he do this? He says, I'm going to send an angel lest I consume you along the way. You see, what he's seen of Israel, their their sinfulness, is he knows that if he, a holy God, dwells in their midst, it's not going to go well for them. So mercifully, he puts an angel there instead of himself. And when the people find out about this, uh, they are not excited because they realize that it's a serious downgrade to have an angel going before you rather than the living God in your midst kind of to make it a little bit understandable what's happening here it's it's as if Israel was engaged to Yahweh and then he just put them in the friend zone or it's maybe something like they were promised that they were going to roll into the promised land in a Tesla and now they're being told it's a Chevy spark Or maybe even they were told they were going to go to Misty's for dinner, and they show up, and it's Amigos. You see, things had changed. There was a a downgrade that had happened for the people of Israel. And we see this right before uh, the the part that we're looking at today. Uh, It's a, a section talking about this place called the Tent of Meeting. And the Tent of Meeting is how the people of God are going to communicate with God. Uh, In the past, they had been told that there was going to be a tabernacle. The tabernacle was this place of worship right in the middle of the camp. And it was going to be a glorious place where God dwelt with his people. And if you read it closely, actually in the Bible, it makes it seem like what's happening with the tabernacle is the Garden of Eden all over again. Like it is a special place where God dwells with his people. But instead, now they have a tent of meeting, which is outside the camp, and only Moses is allowed to go And Joshua, his assistant, stands guard at the gate. And the people, when they worship, they have to stay in their tents and worship. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Having to stay in your home and worship? You see, they went from having the presence of God in a tangible way to having this angel going before them. And so this tent of meeting where Moses is out meeting with God is the setting for our passage. And this first section of it, really, it's just kind of these two petitions and answers. It's a conversation between Moses and the Lord. So let's look at the first one. Look with me to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. So Moses kind of begins this conversation by recounting his and the people's history with the Lord. He's saying, Lord, remember that time when you told me to bring the people up out of Egypt. You remember that? And Lord's, of course, the Lord remembers that because he remembers everything. And then he, he goes on to note in verse 13, he says that I have found favor in your sight. And this language, if you read this passage, favor in your sight, it's repeated over and over and over again. And if you look for it elsewhere in the Old Testament, it is always used around a covenant. And We talked about this a little bit last week, but a covenant is a relationship that God establishes between himself and his people. And it is, it's more personal than a contract, and it is more permanent than a normal relationship. And so Moses is using this language of covenant. He's reminding God of the history, and he's talking about the covenant. And he says in verse 13, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. He's basically saying, if you love me, show me this so that I can know you love me, Right? This is a desperate argument. Like you can, you can hear the desperation in his voice. And how does God respond in verse 14? He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He responds to this desperate request by saying, okay, I'll do what you asked. Just notice here, God does not rebuke this desperation. Instead, he says, you're right. That's important. I'll be with you. So you might expect it to end there, but actually there's another set of petitions and answers. Moses is not satisfied with this response from God. We see in verse 15, Moses kind of loops around for another pass of this. He says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Like, I'm not going to go if your presence doesn't go with us. And again, I mean, note the desperation here. And then in verse 16, he moves on and he talks about uh, God's reputation and God's plan and how that's attached to the people. And we see, if if you look carefully, it's a very vulnerable admission from Moses here in verse 16. He says, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct from every every other people on the face of the earth? What Moses is saying here about Israel, he's saying that, Our distinctiveness, what matters about us, the important thing about us has always been you. It hasn't been something intrinsic to us. It's come from the outside. It's come from your love. And now if we don't have your love, we are in a bad spot. He's saying that they are utterly desperate for the presence of God. Uh, This makes me think of a scene in one of my favorite shows, uh, The Office, um, I really think about everything in terms of the office, so if you know me, you know that. Um, but in the scene, it's um, Michael Scott, the boss, started dating Holly, who is the HR rep uh, at this point, which is kind of a no-go, but that happens on the show all the time. But Holly is moving to Nashua after her and Michael have only been dating for a couple of months. And Nashua is about 10 hours away from Scranton, where he is. And so they've decided that they're going to do this long-distance relationship. So. Michael and Holly and Daryl load up the Dunder Mifflin truck and they start going up to Nashua. And you can tell, as things are going on, that Holly starts to realize this ain't gonna work. We need need to break up. And Michael, uh, in typical Michael fashion, he makes it way more difficult than it needs to be. Uh, He starts off by trying to trick her out of it. Um, She starts saying, listen, I wanna break up with you, like we're done. And he says, "Okay, okay, okay, here's my wish. I want you to meet a great guy, and I want you to be happy. And she says, thank you, Michael. And he says, incidentally, my wish has come true. You have met me, and you are happy. And then that doesn't work, so he goes on to just being directly desperate. He says, Holly, I'm not strong. If you leave me, I'll go back to Jan, and I hate Jan, (laughs) his ex-girlfriend. You see, Michael responds from this place of desperation because he realizes that he has found the one. He realizes he can't do any better than her. You see, this is what we see in our passage, except it's a lot more serious, and it's not funny. We see Moses begging for God's presence because he realizes how important God's presence is to his life and to the life of Israel. You see, if they're going to be the people that God has called them to be, God has called them to be a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations. They're supposed to show the watching world what God's character looks like. And if they're going to do that, there is no way they can do that without God being in the midst of them. So how does the Lord answer Moses's request here? He says in verse verse 17, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. It's as if the Lord is saying, Moses, good point. That was like an astute argument. I did say all that. I did do all that. And I'll do exactly what you asked for. So think back to our original question. What should we do when we feel like God is not with us? I think the first thing we see here is that we should own our desperation. We should own our desperation. But why is this so hard, right? Why can we not get excited about being desperate? I think it's because we realize that desperation betrays dependence. When we're desperate for something, it shows that we're dependent on something. And this is difficult for us culturally. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but our country signed this thing called the Declaration of Independence at one point. And that's very much in the water with how we talk about ourselves. We're independent. We're self-reliant. Our origin story is one of rejecting oppression and building something from scratch. It's a group of people coming together around this grand idea. We don't like the idea of being desperate for something. But it's also difficult for us maybe personally. If you're in a relationship and your partner says something to you like, wow, you're desperate, you're probably about to get dumped. Like it's not going well for you. You see, and and telling people your needs in relationship is hard, but it's where real relationship starts. So why must we own our desperation with God? See, we must own our desperation with God because we were created for intimate relationship with him. We were created to be known and cared for. No matter how much we run from it, that's what we were created for. You see, we try to distract ourselves with lesser things without admitting to ourselves that what we're really longing for is to be known and loved by our creator. So we we must own our desperation. What else do we see in this passage? If you would look with me to verses uh, 18 through 23. So Moses has owned that he and the people are desperate for the presence of God. And then, I guess unsurprisingly, he loops back around for one more final request. And if you're anything like me and you hate asking things of people, like, this just makes you cringe. It's like Moses, like, God has already said he's going to be with you. He's already said, like, his covenantal presence is going to be there with the people. Like, just enough is enough. And then Moses asks the biggest request yet. He says to God in verse 18, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. And in the Old Testament, glory, it, it means something like your, your weightiness, your significance, your godness. He's essentially asking God, I want you to show me what makes you, you. I need to have a clearer picture of you. It kind of makes me wonder, like, why does Moses keep asking for more? Why can't he just be satisfied? Think about it like this, Um, how would you respond if you were in a a healthy relationship, whether it be a friendship or a marriage, if there's some sort of rupture in the relationship? How do you deal with that? If it's a healthy relationship, it's completely okay for you to boldly ask for assurance that you're going to be okay. You seek to reconnect with the person after the rupture. And what we've seen here is a rupture in the relationship between God and His people, and Moses is seeking to reconnect. He wants assurance. Now, see, this sort of thing would be entirely uh, inappropriate with, say, like your healthcare provider. Like, if United Healthcare sends you a bill and it's like two hundred dollars higher than normal, it would be a little weird if you responded to that email by saying, "Like, do you love me? Are you going to leave me? Is it going to be okay?" You see, the the nature of the relationship determines what's responsible, what's possible here. You see, in a covenantal relationship, like the relationship between God and his people, it makes sense for Moses to be continually asking for more and more of God. And can I just say, this is not just a privilege that Moses has, but this is a privilege that we all have. Because we are all in covenant relationship with God. You see, the relationship... uh, that we see here, it was entirely appropriate for Moses to make this request. And how does Moses, or how does God respond to Moses' request? He responds in two ways. He responds first by giving Moses uh, less than what he asked for, and then by giving him more than what he asked for. So we see in verse 19, he gives Moses less than what he asked for. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So Moses has just asked God, I want to see everything. I want to see what makes you, you. And God says, not going to do that. I'm going to show you my goodness. But you can't see my face, because if you see my face, you would die. He's saying to him, essentially, like, the you can't handle seeing me, Moses. So I'm going to give you something else. He says, my glory is not something that a human being can handle without dying. So he gives him less, but, but in a way, he also is giving him more. So how does this work? Uh, when, when I was in seminary, I was a TA for um, my absolute favorite professor. He asked me after my first semester if I wanted to be his TA, and I was just, I mean, I was thrilled. It's was very excited. This is a guy that I look up to. I've read all his books. I mean, he's just like, he's the man in my eyes. And uh, as things went on, I was a TA for a couple of semesters, but then towards the end of my time in seminary, being a TA kind of moved down on the list of things that were important for me. There were a lot of things that I had to do. And one semester in particular, my, uh, my grading and the amount of time I was spending on my TA work was pretty low. Like if, uh, if someone turned something in, I would make a comment or two and just kind of turn the grades in. I'd, it was just a hard time of life for me. And I just didn't feel like I was doing a good job at being a TA. And then I, uh, this kind of all came to a head for me one day on a Wednesday I got out of my 8.30 class and then I headed straight for the library on campus to work on some assignment that I'm sure I was really behind on. And I get started working on this assignment and then 30 minutes in my, my stomach just like sinks because I realized I was supposed to have a TA meeting that started 15 minutes ago. And here I am sitting in the library. So I gather all my stuff together I'm sweaty, angry at myself, I'm ashamed. I feel like my failure as a TA, my failure in life at this time is just being exposed right here. So my hope as I walk into this meeting is that I'm just going to be able to slip into the back and just like no one's going to see me and I'll just be able to hear what's going on and everything will be fine. And instead, I walk into the meeting, try to sit down in the back and my professor uh, stops everything and then he just looks at me uh, with this just goofy, kind look on his face. And he just says, Thomas, it's good to see you. And then he's just silent, like a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just sitting there, like, okay, uh, good, good, to, good to be seen, I guess. I'm so sorry I was late. I just, uh, you know, I was turning stuff in, and, you know, it's a hard time of life. And he just stopped me and said, no, 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 that's okay. I'm just glad you're part of my team. It shook me. You see, in acknowledging me and in treating me like a person, my professor was definitely giving me less than what I asked for. I wanted him to not even notice me. But instead, he chose to engage me and treat me like a person. He chose to show me the kindness of Jesus. And we see, that's what the Lord is doing with Moses in this passage. He he is showing him kindness. He is showing him more We see in verse 19, he says, I will make, the Lord says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And he unpacks what he means by goodness in the latter part of this verse. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's as if he's saying to Moses, listen, I know there are a lot of things you wanna know about me, but right now the most important thing for you to know, I am gracious and I am merciful. And we see originally that Moses has asked to see God's glory. And then this is kind of subtle, but in verse 22, when God is talking about what he's going to do, he says, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. So he had said earlier, he said, I'm not going to let you see my glory, but I will let you see my goodness. And then here he says, I'm going to let you see my glory. What's going on here? I think what's happening here is that God is equating his glory with his goodness, God is, it's as if he's saying to Moses, my glory, everything about me is too big for you to possibly comprehend, but I will show you a part of me that gives you a pretty good idea about what the rest is like. I'm gonna show you my goodness. You see, the Lord knew that what Moses needed and indeed what we all need is to gaze on God's goodness. We need to see him as he is. That's the most important thing that we can see at any time. So that's, this is kind of the second answer we see here. What should we do when we feel like God is not with us? We should gaze on God's goodness. So like Moses and Israel, what we need more than anything is, is to be captivated by God's love and mercy. And yet we are tempted to think of other things. So kind of a way to get at this, ask yourself, uh, what does the church need right now in order to accomplish its task? What do we need right now to proclaim the gospel with faithfulness? And if we're honest, would gazing on God's goodness, would looking at God and finding him beautiful, would that be in the top five? I mean, as I'm thinking, things come to mind. How about ending COVID? How about returning to normal? That'd probably be top of my list. Or maybe more programs, or we need more young people. We need Gen Z, Gen A, whatever gen it. Is, we need more young people. We need better preaching or music. Or, or maybe we need more precise doctrinal, pre- doctrinal papers. We need more Christians in places of power. We need to return the church to this place of cultural prominence. All of these things can be good. But what if all of that stuff is down the river from what we really need? You see, what we see in this passage is that the church needs to be a community that is enthralled with God's goodness. We need to be a people who, who are gazing upon God's goodness, who are seeing Him as gracious and merciful and having that transform us. And I think kind of an application of this kind of to say, I I don't know if you're like me, but I grew up in a Christian home. And I grew up hearing that um, other than Christian folks find it off-putting when Christians talk about how much they love Jesus, or when they, when they gush about how, how good God is. Um, so this was just kind of a belief that was in my mind, but that has not been my experience. And I, I think what people find off-putting about Christians is not how much we spend time gazing upon God's goodness. It's the fact that we don't ever do that at all. We don't gaze enough upon God's goodness, We proclaim that God is good with our mouths, and yet we bow down at the altar of political power, of individualism, and materialism. As the scriptures say, we glorify God with our mouths, but our hearts are far from him. You see, if we want to reach the dying world with the gospel of Jesus, really the best thing that we can do is to be absolutely captivated by the beauty of God. And I think we'll find that the weirdness of Christianity is not as off-putting as we think. I don't know if you've looked around, but I think our culture is okay with weird. What they're not okay with is us trying to make things palatable. They're not okay with us trying to get the goals of Jesus not in the way of Jesus. We need to hold those things together. So how do we wrap all this up? Think back with me to uh, Dr. King sitting in his home, desperate for God's presence, not sure if he can go on. What happened next? He says that as he was praying, he experienced the presence of God in a way that he had never experienced before. And he heard this this inner voice of quiet assurance saying this, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. And then he says, almost at once my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared and I was ready to face anything. You see, Martin Luther had had this experience like like Moses here. He had had this experience of God's presence, and it fueled him to fight injustice and to proclaim the good news. But what about us? How can we find an assurance of God's presence? Friends, if we want an assurance of God's presence, we, we need to look no further than Jesus. We need to look no further than Jesus, who was called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. It means God present with us. It means God in our experience. It means God here and now. See, in our passage, Moses saw God's back. That's all he saw. And he was given all the assurance he needed to continue on. Then the author of the Hebrews says this of Jesus, says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe By the word of his power. If Moses had all he needed by seeing a little bit of God's back, how much more do we have when we can see the exact imprint of his nature in Jesus? If we want to gaze upon the goodness of God, we should look to Jesus. You see, Moses' request for God to show him his glory in this passage is fulfilled in Jesus. In Jesus, we see what God meant when he said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What he meant was the cross. In Jesus, we find one who covers us and keeps us safe so that we do not need to fear the presence of God, but actually can be comforted by it. You see, in in Jesus, we see that God's goodness is not just an abstraction, but it's a lived reality. Jesus came to earth, he bore our sin, he knew desperation. And in Jesus, we can see how God could be so patient with Israel and Moses over and over again. And indeed, how he can be so patient with us. See, on the cross, God made an end to our sin in Jesus so that he wouldn't have to make an end to us. And that's good news. What could be more worthy of our attention? What could be more worthy of our gaze than Jesus? You see, the cross is God's goodness on our display. So let's turn our eyes to it and gaze upon Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are with us. Lord, we thank you that um, you communicate this to us uh, clearly. The entire Bible is the story of you doing that. And we see it most fully in Jesus. We see this most fully in Christ, who who came to earth, became man, lived a perfect life, suffered on our behalf, was crucified, dead, and buried, and then rose from the dead. And Lord, we know that if we are united with him, we also will rise, and that is our hope. So we thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that it will um, continue to instruct us and give us hope. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.